we're going to be looking at God as the true shepherd, the true shepherd. The idea of God as, as shepherd is one of the most pervasive and, and captivating images within the Bible. When one thinks of God as shepherd, for many of us, we turn immediately to the 23rd Psalm. And when you think about God as a shepherd, because we've been introduced to the 23rd Psalm and, 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 and we've known it probably one of the first scriptures that we've memorized as children, our minds turn to the 23rd Psalm. And the 23rd Psalm is arguably one of the most beloved Psalms in all of the Psalter. It's one of the most appreciated pieces of Old Testament literature. And I think it's one of people's favorite Psalms and, and people's favorite passages of scripture because it specifically explores the metaphor of God as the shepherd who leads, feeds, guides, provides, protects, and refreshes. So with this beautifully constructed language, Psalm 23 begins its opening stanza with the audacious assertion that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We're familiar with it, and even though you all know that I generally do not teach from the King James Version, but for some things, you just gotta have it in the King James Version. And Psalm 23 is one of them, and I love to hear its poetic language. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores, restores my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me. In the presence of mine enemies, thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This psalm of trust, traditionally ascribed to David, is a reflection on God as the one who leads God's people with the tender compassion and attentive affection of a shepherd. Now for Israel, which was primarily an agricultural society, the image of God as shepherd, it resonated with their cultural roots and their ancestral history as nomadic shepherds who received sustenance and livelihood through tending flocks. We are familiar with, in Genesis 12, Genesis 12, Abram is shepherding when God calls him out and he says to him, Abram, go to the land where I'm going to lead you, the land that I'm going to send you. He's shepherding. If you move to Genesis, I believe it is, yes, 29, Rachel is watering the flocks and functioning as a shepherdess when she meets her intended husband. If you move on to Genesis 37, what's going on? Someone is functioning as a shepherd. Jabin finds success when he meets his soon-to-be wife within the household of his uncle Laban. He goes and he meets the woman that he falls in love with 
functioning as a role of shepherd. And at that same time, what happens? He then begins to take on the role as shepherd. If you move to Exodus 3, Exodus 3, Moses, who has left from being a prince of Egypt, he's gone all the way into the desert. He's, he's on the backside of Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, and he is functioning as a shepherd when God speaks to him through the burning bush and says, Moses, I have work for you to do. Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. I'm giving you a new assignment. And you thought that all these years where you were tending the flocks of your father-in-law Jethro, you thought that's what you were going to be. You thought you were going to be a shepherd. Well, Moses, I'm calling you out and I'm calling you to shepherd my people. So this image of shepherd is important to the people of Israel, to the children of Israel, because as nomadic shepherds, they understood the importance of adequately taking care of the sheep. Now we're gonna get to this a little later, but I just wanna pause for a moment to talk about the point that shepherds are those who tend to take care of and lead the sheep and those who actually have a heart for the sheep, heart for empowering people or the sheep to be what God has called them to be. The shepherd is the one that seeks the well-being of their flock at all times. You see, the metaphor of God as, as shepherd for agricultural Israel was crucial to their theological understanding of the Lord as the one at all costs who led them, guided them, and protected them because it was the Lord that led them like a shepherd out of bondage in Egypt. It was the Lord that protected them as a shepherd as they walked through the waters of the Red Sea on dry ground. It was the Lord that fed them like a shepherd with manna and quail as they wandered in the wilderness. It was the Lord that refreshed them as the good shepherd does with sweet water when water that they were trying to drink was bitter at Mara, Mara, which means bitter water. It was the Lord that prepared a table for them literally in the presence of their enemies in the land as they are trying to enter into Canaan as a good shepherd does. So for the original receivers of the literature of the Old Testament and Hebrew Bible, because we understand that while the Bible was written for us generations down, the line, it wasn't written to us. It was written in a specific time, in a specific social context for the people that would hear this word. So for the original receivers of the literature of the Old Testament, also interchangeably known as the Hebrew Bible, the imagery of God as shepherded resonates with their history and their experience. Because Israel knew firsthand, they had firsthand experience that it was God who lovingly shepherded them and protected them like a flock, a flock that had been vulnerable, a flock that had been exposed and dependent, a flock that was in need of help. You know, that's why Psalm 23 resonated so deeply with Israel, because they knew that God had led them, sustained them, restored them, protected them, and provided for them in their deepest times. And as I thought about sitting in the in pastor's office, and hearing the music that was uh, being played, and I heard Sister Eames testify that she knew that it was God that brought her through a particularly difficult time. And all of us, if we be honest in here, can say that we know that God shepherded or guided us through some difficult times. So we, like the uh, children of Israel, 
can understand why Psalm 23, this image of God as a shepherd, and not just as a shepherd, because there were all kinds of shepherds in the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, but this idea of God as good shepherd, as the true shepherd, resonated with them. So tonight for our study on the true shepherd, we are actually going to move beyond the 23rd Psalm. We use the 23rd Psalm as a way to get into the conversation and get into the topic, but we're going to look at some other passages of scriptures that I believe are some of the most helpful biblical examples of the Lord as the true shepherd. And these images tonight that we're going to be looking at, these passages of scripture, are found primarily in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And we'll spend the majority of our time looking at Ezekiel. And these images of God as the true uh, shepherd, they come up, they arise out of the context of the people being in exile. That's where they come from. So, of course, we know according to the Hebrew scriptures, particularly the narrative as presented by the Deuteronomic history, and the Deuteronomic history is just a scholarly word talking about the books of Deuteronomy with uh, the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, the books of Samuel and Kings. Together, biblical scholars call this the Deuteronomic history. So if we look at the DH, for sure, for the Deuteronomic history, and then we couple that as what we, with what we see in the prophets, you realize that when you put those two together, the biblical writers realize that what occurred as they looked over the trajectory of the history of Israel is that Exile occurred for both Israel and Judah because they did not keep covenant relationship with God. They did not keep covenant. So if any of you are Sunday school students, you know that all this entire uh, fall theme, we're looking at covenant, themes of covenant. We're looking at the idea of people who are called into relationship with God in covenant. And then the signs of the covenant that go along with this calling into relationship with God in covenant. And then the idea that the covenant is everlasting. So in Sunday school, we're looking at, we, we looked at the no, uh, Noahic covenant, the, co the covenant that God had with Noah. We're, we're looking at the covenant that God had with Abraham, looking at the covenant that God also had with the exiled people when they come back after the exile is over. This idea that because covenant people, people that God loves so much that God extended God's self to these people and God said, I'm going to choose you to be in covenant with. And, and God chooses them to be in covenant with. And God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to love you like a parent loves a child. I'm going to take care of you like a good and true shepherd takes care of uh, a shepherd's flock. I'm going to do all of this, but there are some responsibilities that I'm expecting of you. There's some things that I'm expecting you to do as people who are in covenant relationship. But because they do not keep covenant, they break covenant, then they end up in a place that they never would have imagined. They end up exiled. So first, the northern kingdom of Israel is exiled. They're exiled in the year of 722. The northern kingdom is overrun by the Assyrians under the military uh, might of Sargon, and the people are exiled first to Assyria. And Judah does not learn the lesson from their big sister in the north. Because what happens in 586, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon devastates the southern kingdom of Judah. He destroys Jerusalem and then exiles those people, most of the people, definitely the middle class and the upper class, takes them away and sends them to Babylon. So it's during the experience of exile 
that the people realize, they're forced to wrestle with the fact that they've lost everything. They've lost their land, they've lost their dignity, they've lost the means by which they can be self-determinant. They don't have the ability to decide what they want to do for themselves and then do it because now they're in a situation and a context where they are no longer free individuals. They are living under somebody else's law. They're captured people who have been displaced from their homeland and they are subject to the whims, machinations, and the political decisions of the empire of Babylon. The people are pawns of a political system that seeks to use them and exploit them, not love them and take care of them. So if they survive, it's by chance, not because the imperial powers that are over them really care that much about them. So the people are in a situation where they've lost everything and they begin to struggle with the idea of, we've lost it all. Has God abandoned us? You know, sometimes I think we, we go through situations and maybe some of us ask the question, God, have you abandoned me? I've been praying for something for a long time. I've been seeking your face about something for a long time, and it seems like you've forgotten all about me. This is where Israel was. And so it's within the context of exile that they begin to reflect on their collective relationship with God. They begin to reflect on the fact that they once had a God who loved them and protected them, but it seems like God has forgotten all about them. So it's during the exile that Israel is scattered. They're scattered geographically. Mentally, they're scattered. Physically, they're scattered. They've been taken from homeland. Emotionally and spiritually, they are scattered by their forced deportation to Babylon. And when you've been ripped from your homeland, you've been stripped of your political power, you've been stripped of your means of economic production, you've been stripped of your heritage and your dignity, you're scattered. You know, black folk ought to know something about being scattered. You know, it's, it's interesting. I often have conversation with, with the boys, with our, 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 our two, uh, and it's interesting how, and they're so young, 20 and 22, they know everything, amen. <laughs> that, was a, that was a cheeky comment. They don't know everything, but they think they know everything. And so in, in discussing political affairs and in discussing our history as African-American people, they often say, why do y'all harp so much on, on slavery? Why do you talk about that? You know, that's 400 years ago. And we say, because if you don't understand where you come from, how do you understand the context that you live in? You know, the 13th Amendment granted freedom from slavery and freed the slaves, except it had a little clause in it that said, except for those who are criminals. That's what it says, if you would ever get a copy of it and read it. So technically, we are free. But are we really free when a whole bunch of our community are locked up in prisons, in jails, in Angola, locked up? Some because they did some stuff they had no business doing. But then the question remains is when, a, when, when structures and powers and, uh, and powers that be set up situations where you have no other options, what do you do? So technically we're free. But how free are we if all of our kin and cousins don't have a job that they can make a way for themselves? How free are we if we don't have access to adequate health care? 
How free are we if technically we can live anywhere and send our kids to school anywhere, but the schools that we send our kids to, if we can't afford to send them to private schools, are not equal? We are living in a context where we, really in East Baton Rouge, have schools that are separate and unequal, but we free. And so to dislocate ourselves from our history and culture of being taken from our homeland, stripped of our heritage, stripped of our name, stripped from everything that made us who we are, and not remember that it is the struggle that kept us together as black folks all the way through slavery, through Jim Crow, through Reconstruction, through the Civil Rights Movement. When we dislocate ourselves, as sometimes our young folks you know, tend to do sometimes, if we dislocate ourselves from that history, how can you understand that in many ways we stand in the same place right now? How do we understand the fact that my nephew who's a smart young uh, individual and uh, graduated from high school and went to culinary school within his high school program for two years. And when he got to that point where he graduated from college, he already had 12 to 18 college credits, preparing to go uh, to junior college because one of the best culinary uh, spaces in that Missouri and Kansas area is actually at the junior college, prepares to go. But he's like, you know what? I want to make sure I have money saved up and have things like that, so I'm going to start looking for a job. And he begins to look for a job and can't find the kind of job that will enable him to have the things he needs for school. Now, of course, he has family. Of course, he has a mother and aunts and uncles and grandparents that are going to support him. But in his mind, he's like, I want to be able to help myself. But when he goes and begins looking for the kind of job that he ought to be able to get because he has a skill set that ought to be valuable, they turn him away. And he's a shy and humble young man. So he may not be as forceful about putting himself out there as other folks, but the truth of the matter is he learned the hard lesson that I can have all the skills. I can have the skill set, but because of my, the color of my skin, people might not give me the same opportunity. So he's free, but not free to be self-determining. So this idea of being exiled from who you are and what you are, being scattered, this is how Israel felt. They were scattered by lack of economic opportunity, scattered by lack of job employment, scattered. And this is where they begin to think about the one that, 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 that shepherded them up to the point that they broke covenant relationship. And this is when they begin to think, and then the prophets begin to speak to God's people. And the prophets begin to say, yes, we got here because you had some shepherds, albeit they were kings. Maybe they were priests, but you had some people who were shepherds, but they weren't good shepherds. They weren't the true shepherd. So the prophets begin to look at and talk about what it means for God to be the true shepherd. So the work of the shepherd is to gather the flock back together as they're exposed to serious danger as they've been exiled from their place of home. So the image of the gathering shepherd, the one that will bring them back together, is the image that begins to permeate the minds and the hearts and the mindsets of exiled people in Babylon who are being ministered to by the prophets who are saying, there is a God that will gather you back even though you're scattered now. So the work of the shepherd is to gather back the flock because they are exposed to danger. So we're going to turn to Isaiah 40. 
And we're going to look at Isaiah 40 and 11, and then we're going to move to Jeremiah 31:10. So we can see this image of a shepherd, what a true shepherd does. So in Isaiah 40, the 11th verse, it says, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Gently lead like a mother. Then Jeremiah 31, 10 says, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather them and will keep him as a shepherd keeps a flock. You see, so those are two examples, examples of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40 and the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 talking about how a good shepherd, a good leader as a true shepherd gathers back those that have been scattered. But I believe that if you would turn over to Ezekiel the 34th chapter, I believe that that's one of the fullest and deepest expressions of God as the true shepherd. And so what Ezekiel is doing in the 34th chapter is he's invoking the shepherd model of leadership that should have been the model of leadership of the Davidic kings. It should have been the model that the kings who, who were tasked to take care of Israel should have been that model. And so what is, uh, Ezekiel does as he begins to talk about God as the true shepherd as he talks about the ways that Israel was shepherded by bad shepherds. So he doesn't praise the kings for successfully shepherding Israel and Judah because that's not what they did. If they had properly shepherded them, they would not have ended up in exile. So what Ezekiel specifically says is he indicts the Davidic kings as neglectful leaders who caused the exile. Ezekiel, who is speaking on God's behalf, presents a twofold response to the improper behavior of the previous king. So let's take a look at Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16a. And this is where Ezekiel is saying God will be a proper and responsible shepherd to recover the flock. It says, reading out of the New Revised Standard Version, For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the watercourses and in all the inhabited parts of the land. I will feed them with good pasture. And the mountain heights of Israel will be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 23? They'll lie down in good grazing land and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. Verse 16, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. So the writer of Ezekiel vividly illustrates the principle that a good shepherd is one who does six things. 
First, a good shepherd searches for the sheep. The shepherd searches out the sheep, and the shepherd goes wherever the shepherd has to go to redeem the sheep until they're found, because the shepherd will not rest until every sheep is counted and accounted for. No one is to be left behind, not one. Every member of the flock is valued. Every member of the flock matters. Every member of the flock attends, deserves to be attended to, and therefore the shepherd is searching for the sheep. Now keep in mind the context of this passage. The shepherd is searching out the sheep who've been scattered. And that's what God does with us. God searches us out. God, God, God goes and looks for us where we are. You know, it's interesting that, 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 that we say the doors of the church are open and, and the doors are the, of the church are open to anyone. But the truth of the matter is, God goes and searches us out. before. So even before we make that confession of faith, God has been searching for us, looking for us, saying, I'm waiting on you. God going into the highways and the byways to look for us. That's what a good shepherd does. Now, understand, I, I didn't grow up in, in agricultural land. I, I'm a city girl. But I understand because my grandfather and my grandfather's people owned cattle, and sheep in Oklahoma. And I would go down and visit and see the land that they owned. And they would talk about how, uh, when they went out and do cattle run, and some of them would, 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 would get away and they'd have to go out and they'd have to feed the cattle and then they'd have to gather the sheep. And they would talk about how if one got away, they'd have to go searching and looking. So while I'm a city girl, I understand the agricultural principle. The point is that a good shepherd, a true shepherd, is not satisfied if one is left behind. You know, my dad was a military man, spent his career in the military, in, in the Air Force, and would often talk about how in the Air Force, this idea that you don't leave anybody behind. If you're able to go back and, and, and retrieve your brothers or sisters in arms, that you're going to do that. That's how God with us, God is not satisfied if anybody is left behind. And as God's representatives, we should have the same concern and the same heart for catching those who might be left behind. Because that's what the Good Shepherd does for us. That's what the Good Shepherd does in us. So anyone that comes in, and it's not just the coming in. That's why as the church, we're supposed to go out because a good shepherd seeks those who are lost. You know, it's interesting how oftentimes, and we thank God for, for, for adding to the body of Christ, but a lot of times the folks that come and join are folks who are already Christians. They've been to a church already. They just decided to move their membership. They're coming by Christian experience. But the work of the church is to go out and to seek those who are outside the walls. And the work of evangelism is not just for the evangelism team, it's for all of us. We ought always be mindful that someone might be left, they might be left behind. And so the work of the good shepherd goes out and searches out. So the good shepherd searches out for the sheep, but also the good shepherd rescues the sheep. It's not enough to go search out if you leave folk where they are. The good shepherd, God is good shepherd, rescues the sheep from all the places that they find themselves in. And understand, it's not just the places that they accidentally fell in. 
The good shepherd will go retrieve the sheep from places that they put themselves in. Dangers that they walked into on their own. You know, the truth of the matter is Israel walked herself down the road to perdition. She walked herself down the road that led to exile because Israel had opportunity time and time and time again to act like they had good sense in the, in, in the idea of covenant people. God told them. This Sunday we're talking about what happened after the, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. They knew what the law was. They knew what their responsibilities were as covenant people, and, 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 and they messed up. And God would have been in God's right to leave them where they were. But God didn't do that. Yes, for a time they had to be exiled, but then God goes and rescues the sheep from the places where they put themselves in. How many of us ended up in some situations? It didn't just happen. It didn't just happen. You just didn't wake up and, and, and be like, oh Lord, I don't know how I got here. No, you know how you got there. It didn't just happen. I'm reminded of a time that I was at the, the, the beauty shop getting my hair done. And you know, when you're a beauty shop, you're talking about all kinds of stuff, because you know, depending on what you're getting done, you're gonna, you might be there a while. And I, I will never forget, I don't know a name and I wouldn't call it anyway. But we were just there talking. And, and um, at the shop, I think something was on, I don't know if we were on BET or Centric or something, but a, a show came on and uh, it, it, it was uh, something going on and the character on the show, Basically, it just found herself in this uh, situation where over and over she just ended up in this situation where she kept, let's put it like this, um, kept meeting people and after immediately meeting people, then she would find herself in intimate space with people. You know, one night stand kind of situation, just to be real about it. You know, we adults up in here. So, so we're talking about this and, and, and uh, uh, person sitting in the chair next to me says, well, I understand how that can happen. You know, sometimes it just happens. I said, oh, no, baby, it don't never just happen. Now, let's be honest up in here. Now, you know, if, if, if you want to talk, let's talk. I said, no, it don't never just happen. You just don't wake up one morning and be like, oh, no, how I got, yes, you did. You saw him, you saw her, they looked it good, and you said, wouldn't it be nice? You know, you know, uh, uh, as Pastor was teaching last week, that lust, that is a sin, not because of the action, but because action begins in thought. This idea of, no, it just doesn't happen. You think about it and you ruminate on it. And so we were just discussing that and I said, no, 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 let's be honest now. I found myself in some places, but I didn't tell that lie that I didn't know what happened. Yeah, you know what happened. You made a conscious decision to walk yourself down the path that ended up wherever that was. So this idea that, you know, sometimes we make mistakes and we just end up there. But a lot of times we know the road we're going and we stay on the train anyway. If you want to be honest, now, you know, now if you want to be fake, well, you know, that's between you and the Lord, but I don't know why the point of being fake, because God knows your mind and heart. Anyway, so, you know, for us to get to healing, sometimes we just need to start with, I admit, I admit. But, but, but what the shepherd does is the shepherd knows that sheep will walk into places where they have no business and they'll get caught in a thicket and can't get themselves out. But the good shepherd doesn't say, well, I told you not to go over there. No, the good shepherd will say, even though you went over there, even though I used my rod and my staff to send you another way, even though you went that way, I'm not going to leave you by yourself. I'm going to search you out, and then after I've searched you out, I'm going to rescue you. That's what God does for us. God rescues us, 
even when we don't deserve it because that's God's nature. That's the love of God, that, that, that so loved uh, uh, idea or nature of God. God so loved the world that God gave, knowing that the world had gotten ugly. But God still gave God's only son. A good shepherd, a true shepherd, will search you out. Search you out and then rescue you. I love that about uh, the shepherd. So first, a good shepherd searches for the sheep, rescues the sheep, but also a good shepherd gathers the sheep. A good shepherd gathers the sheep and the people back together. A good shepherd, the true shepherd, provides a physical, spiritual, and emotional space that allows all of the sheep a seat at the table and an opportunity to come home. You know, one thing that I love about Lord's Supper Sunday and standing at the table, and I remember couple times uh, ago when we had Lord's Supper and Pastor asked me to pray. Now I remember praying the prayer, God, thank you for the opportunity uh, because at the table, we're all equal. You know, that's what God does. God equalizes out the playing field and God will gather us all back. And so a good shepherd makes sure that everybody has a seat at the table, not who's the richest, not who's the most influential, not uh, the one that has uh, the most letters behind their names, not those who are the influencers in society, but we're all equal in front of God. And, and see, that's what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd will gather the sheep back. You know, in Psalm 91, it talks about, the psalmist talks about how God gathers the people under wings of safety protection. In fact, in Psalm 91, 1 through 4, listen to this. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High God shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snail of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shall thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler. So a good shepherd gathers the sheep, solidifying them into a unified body with like mind, like goals, uh, like-minded purposes, like that hen that brings all the little chicks under her feathers. That's what God does. God gathers us back from the places where we found ourselves. So God not only searches out a good shepherd, then rescues, but God gathers you back. Because what is the point of rescue if you stay in the place where you were? What's the point of rescue if you stay where you were lost and then you get lost all over again? But a good shepherd will gather you back to himself. And so God gathers, but also God feeds the sheep. A good shepherd ensures that the flock is well fed on a diet that is designed to meet the nutritional needs of the flock. The diet that a good shepherd provides is not junk food or fast food. It's a well-balanced diet meeting the nutritional requirements of peculiar sheep that require peculiar food because they represent a peculiar shepherd. You see, you need to understand something about the dietary laws of, of, of Israel. Israel had specific dietary restrictions because it was commanded by God in covenant relationship in the law. But the point also, especially once the people who are exiled have been gathered back, 
their dietary laws were the ways that you could tell them apart from the people of the land. So it wasn't just in what they said, because let's be clear, some of the people of the land who were left there were distant kin of theirs. They were similar people, had a similar background, but they were different because they retained the dietary culture. In fact, when the people of Israel were in Babylon, they ate differently. The story of Daniel and the, and, and, and the four Hebrew boys saying, now we don't want this food. We, we want to be able to eat a particular way. And after some trial and error, they were able to do that. What they ate, the diet that they had, was indicative of who they belonged to. So a good shepherd makes sure, makes sure that the sheep have what they need, a good diet, not junk food. Not the kind of food that will kill you. That's what a good shepherd will do. So, you know, to break it down in contemporary uh, uh, nomenclature, good shepherds are those who lead and teach and preach the kind of sustenance that will grow you, not stunt you. Imagine if you have a newborn baby and you give them red pop. I'm going to say pop. I'm from Missouri. Y'all down here say cold drink, but I'm from Missouri, so I say pop. You say soda water, I say soda pop. Imagine if instead of giving a baby formula or breast milk, you gave it red pop or fanta, or fanta, or gave him some peach fago, because Lord, peach fago, none of you know, ooh, that's good. I'm, I, I try not to drink soda no more, but every once in a while, ooh, that peach fago pull me on in, and I have to say, Lord, help me to do better. But, but. Imagine if you give a baby, you know, that peach figure. Now what, first of all, they're not even gonna grow any teeth right. They're not gonna have, before you realize it, one, they probably can't swallow it, but two, they are going to be stunted in their growth because they're not gonna have the nutritional needs that they need to grow. Good shepherds make sure that their flocks have food that will sustain them. You know, it amazes me. Uh, before we come to, come to church on Sundays, Pastor and I, we get up early and we'll turn on religious TV. And, you know, sometimes we listen to what folks saying and stuff. And it amazes me what, what kind of stuff is out there. But I guess that's because we have all these channels and you got to put something on. But I say to myself, now, does anybody, do they actually have a church? Or do they just talk on TV? Because, you know, some just have religious programs, but they're not connected with a flock. So, you know, you can say whatever because nobody's going to their church. Because I'm like, I know people not following them talking this kind of dribble. <laughs> and some of the stuff folks say, and it amazes me that people will listen to teaching that you know don't make no good sense. But people will go for the sweet, for what makes you feel good for the inspirational, instead of the kind of teaching that will grow you. So now people are getting used to happy prosperity. Everything is always good. Every day is going to be a good day. All you have to do is say, I'm blessed and highly favored. Everything going to be good. Not realizing life every day, you're not going to feel blessed and highly favored. And if all you get is the kind of teaching that makes you feel good, then when something comes along that seeks to destroy you, you're not going to have in you what you need to push that off of you, to combat that. Because we've been eating junk food. Eating, drinking peach fago. 
instead of having some meat and some potatoes, some, you know, some like some good collard greens, some mustard greens, with some, with, with, with some ham hock or some neck bone or, 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 or some uh, uh, cornbread with a little pot liquor. You know, when you get your, I don't know if people still do this, but you know, you get your babies and as they get a little older, you can't really give them hard food right away, but you might give them a little cornbread, sopped up in that good collard, collard green juice because they can handle that. And, and, and that kind of food will stick to you. That, that kind of food will sustain you. Good shepherds give flocks good food. Yeah. And as Christians, people of God, we need to stop flocking to some, 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 some Pink Fago teaching and preaching. Because Pink Fago won't grow you. In fact, it's gonna stunt you. It'll stunt you. A good shepherd feeds the sheep. You know, the truth of the matter is, um, we need to be concerned about city leaders, state leadership, uh, national leadership, whether they be political or religious. That only wants folks to have cotton candy religion, cotton candy theology. You know, uh, as, as preachers, we try very hard. You, you don't ever really want to criticize other folk because you don't know what's going on in, in their context. You, you don't know what's going on in, in a particular church. You don't want to do that. And so preachers, we try very hard. We don't criticize other preachers and pastors. But when you hear stuff that's not right, you have to correct it because we have social media. We have live streaming. We have uh, television. You have all of these things, and then people are receiving all of these different messages, and we have to correct the bad cotton candy food that's out there. You know, it amazes me when I look at uh, the presidential uh, election of 2016, how many conservative religious groups and pastors completely overlooked stuff that if they were standing in a pulpit, they would condemn you for doing some of this stuff, but they overlooked it because they felt like their agenda would be uh, forwarded or, or, or we would, would, would be down uh, uh, accomplished because of aligning themselves with certain folks. But see, when that kind of thing is going on, those of the church who are still living and breathing and standing in the prophetic tradition, in the tradition of Micah, that said, till justice rose, Amos, that talks about love and mercy. Until we stand in, in the shoes of the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah that say, until justice rose, God is not satisfied. Until we stand in that stead and help the world to see that what's going on is not what God intends. God is waiting on us to do some things. You know, how can we be okay with the fact that, that powers that be are trying to dismantle the Affordable Care Act when so many people now have access to opportunity of health care? You know, it's, it amazes me. You know, the things that happen in, in the beauty shop, but also in the nail shop. I was in the nail shop, get, get, get my nails done, sitting next to a, 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 a white sister, and, and we were both getting our nails and our feet done, and we begin to talk about something, and something comes on the news, and, and, and it comes up, and, and, and our president comes up, and he says some stuff that's ridiculous, and so people are responding to it, and, and we're talking, and she's like, well, I just wish, you know, that people would, you know, give them a chance, and I turn. And I said, Demetri, you're here to get your feet done. Don't engage in foolish conversation. But I said, <laughs> um, I said, yes, 
Our president should be given a chance, but he needs to act like a grown-up. I said, some of the things he says, I, 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 I would tell my five-year-old niece, you need to stop that foolishness. And so this idea, and she was like, you know, she was a Christian, good church-going person. And, 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 and the tenor of the conversation was, we have to understand that as Christians, you cannot be all right with the status quo. We have to stand in the shoes of the prophet to ensure that good food goes out not bad food, that people are actually getting what they need. How can we be all right with dismantling opportunity of health care for people who have never had the opportunity? How can we be okay with criminalizing people just because they didn't come from here when this nation was built on immigrants? Not none of us here originally came here. Well, we did because we were born here. We've been here that long. But go all the way back. Nobody was here first but the Native Americans. You know what happened to them? This idea of feeding on food that will not mature you but will retard your growth. So good shepherds feed the sheep, but also good shepherds restore the sheep. Good shepherds seek the restoration of the flock physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, economically, and politically so that the flock can be agents of restoration for other people. That's what Ezekiel was trying to get at. Also, a good shepherd strengthens the sheep. Good shepherds initiate strengthening processes that prepares the sheep to stand as fully embodied, liberated people. That's what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd will strengthen the sheep so that they are able to step out of the places of complacency where they find themselves and stand up against oppression and structures of oppression so that they're not co-opted, so that they're not co-opted. That's what a good shepherd does in leading their sheep. And when you say, what do you mean so they're not co-opted? You know, there's always an opportunity for us to be co-opted by the enemy, right? Mm -hmm. Satan is always seeking to co-opt us. You start out your day and, no, I'm going to have a good day. I got up early. I prayed my prayers. I did my devotion. It's me and you, Lord. Ooh, I'm on the battlefield for my Lord today. And scarcely you get out your door, get in your car, and start driving on I-10 with that traffic. And Lord, somebody seeks to co-opt you. The enemy's like, ooh, you're you going to get out of your worship space because these people keep cutting you off. They keep driving like they don't have any sense. Co-opt you. And that's being funny, but that's just a little incidence of how we can be co-opted, how the, 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 the enemy or the adversary seeks to co-opt us. We, we have folk uh, infiltrating, infiltrating houses of worship. Not because they want to be part of the house of worship, because they, Terry said they spine. That's what he said behind me. Spine, trying to see what you're doing so they can go do the same thing or how they can see how they can destroy what it is that you're doing. Co-opting. Enemy is always trying to co-opt. That's what the enemy does. So a good shepherd, the Lord as a true shepherd, seeks to rescue and restore, but also the Lord as good shepherd differentiates and disciplines. What do I mean? Let's look again at Ezekiel 34 as we get towards our closing. 16b through 22. It says, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, I shall judge between sheep and the shepherd, between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on good pasture? But you must tread down your feet 
tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture? When you drink of clear water, must you foul the rest with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have fouled with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you pushed with flank and shoulder and butted all the weak animals with your horns until you scattered them far and wide, I will save my flock. And they shall no longer be ravaged, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. In this scripture passage, the Lord is speaking through the prophet saying, there will not only be rescue and restoration for the sheep, but there's also going to be a process of determining which shepherds and which sheep are trustworthy. After the determination is made, the sheep that are unworthy will depose from, they're going to be disposed or removed from their positions of influence. You see, there are leaders who have made themselves complicit in the oppressive structures of the day. And this is what Ezekiel was getting at. He was saying, uh, kings, you were there. You were supposed to be there to take care of the oppressed, to take care of the weak, to take care of the downtrodden. You were human shepherds, but you failed to do what I told you to do. So they were complicit in causing the exile. This is what Ezekiel was saying. They failed to keep covenant. And along with the kings who were failed shepherds, there were also some sheep that got in on oppressing other sheep. Now, they're not even the shepherd. They're sheep. One would expect that the sheep would stick together, right? One would expect that, that, that the sheep would pull for each other. And if somebody is coming and trying to oppress you, uh, trying to uh, demean you, trying to uh, take advantage of you, that they would help you. But no, th- there were sheep that were oppressing other sheep. You know, that, that amazes me. You know, it's like that idea of, of crab mentality. All the crabs in the barrel, and as the crab tries to get to the, the, the uh, top, the other crabs are uh, pulling down. These are what the sheep were doing. And so God is saying, I'm going to take care of those shepherds who didn't do what they were supposed to do, but I'm also going to deal with and discipline the sheep who thought it wise to oppress other sheep. You know, we have to be careful of how we treat folks. Because whether you care for them, whether you like them, whether you think they're worthy, God says we all equal. And that's my creation too. I shape them in my image too. So we have to be careful of how we treat folks because God is watching, saying, when you saw someone that needed assistance, did you help them? Or did you pile on the systems, the structures, and the things that continue to oppress them? A good shepherd is not only going to handle the fake and false and phony shepherds. A good shepherd is going to have to deal with and discipline sheep that also oppressed uh, other sheep. In the New Testament, as we prepare to close, Jesus echoes the sentiments of Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16, when he describes himself as the good shepherd in John, the 10th chapter. Jesus says in John 10, 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. They know me just as the fathers know me, knows me, and I know the father. And I give my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this sheep pen, but I must bring them in too. They will also listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. Just as the Lord is the true good shepherd in Ezekiel, 
Jesus is the true good shepherd in John's gospel because he searches out the sheep, rescues the sheep, knows the sheep, protects the sheep, and ultimately gives his life for the sheep. And so in addition to characterizing himself as the good shepherd in John 10, Jesus also offers a strong condemnation for those leaders who pretend to be shepherds but do not actually care for the needs of the sheep. Because listen to what Jesus says about hired hands. He talks about uh, in John uh, 10, 11 to 13, I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The hired man is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when the hired man sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired man. He does not care about the sheep. You see, Jesus makes it clear that the relationship between shepherd and sheepfold, the shepherd and the flock, is a relationship that must be negotiated through love and sacrifice. Love and sacrifice. And it's best expressed in the character of courage. You see, a hired man, runs away when danger approaches. But a true shepherd stays and has the courage to uh, provide and protect. A hired hand is concerned about their own interests so they may not speak truth to power. However, a true shepherd has the courage to stand flat-footed and say what must be said, even if it costs them something. You know, the shepherd model of leadership as expressed in Ezekiel and John, it really reveals that one of the essential components of effective leadership as a good shepherd is the component that engenders courage in the sheepfold. Courage is the ability to speak hope even in the face of dire circumstance. Courage is the ability to face danger without fear. Because courage entails being bold, audacious, and confident, and brave, regardless of what one stands against. Courage is the ability to walk in faith, even when you cannot see your way. Because you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Good Shepherd it's taking care of you. And I think one of the things that we need to be strengthened with in the body of Christ now is we need to be bold. We need to be courageous. Think about the early church. They were being persecuted day in and day out. But that did not stop them from gathering together. That did not stop them from praying together, singing hymns together. That did not stop them from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they understood that uh, 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 an amazing transformation had happened. They understood that Jesus was Lord. They understood that the Messiah that they had been waiting for had come. And that when Jesus got up on the third day, that something happened. And the resurrection that happened on that day, God raising Jesus up, happened in them too. But, so because they had been transformed... They knew that they could not stay the same. So they courageously went out and shared their faith even when they knew that sharing their faith would be dangerous and detrimental to their safety. And I just believe that God is saying, where are the courageous Christians? 
who will act like good shepherds because you know what a good shepherd looks like because we have the record of who Jesus was. That's what a good shepherd looks like. You, you, you ought to know, church, what a good shepherd looks like because I sent the prophets to explain to you what a good shepherd looks like. And God is saying, I I'm waiting for my folk who are called by my name to stand up and be shepherds for somebody else. Because I shepherded you out of your darkness. I called you out of the muck and the mire. I called you from the places. I gathered you. I searched you out. I rescued you. So when are you going to rescue somebody else? When are you going to gather somebody else? When are you going to stand up and speak for someone who cannot speak for themselves? When are you going to be courageous? Because the Christ that dwells in you gives you not the spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. When are you going to realize that you're more than a conqueror? because of what I poured into you. I believe God is, I, I believe this lesson is helping us to see that God is saying, I'm waiting on you to be a good shepherd. You've already had the model to follow by. When are you going to step into the role? And yes, it, it, it requires something of you. There's some responsibilities that come along with being a shepherd. But if you will shepherd, even if it's just one, imagine how different the world would look if just one of us reached out and grabbed one somebody along and showed them a light, shepherd them, shepherding them towards Jesus. And God is saying, I'm waiting on you, church. I'm waiting on you. When are you going to stand and speak like Ezekiel spoke and speak hope to the exiles, people who have been exiled in their own communities, people who have been exiled in their own homes, people who have been exiled in the recesses of their mind, and they're lost and can't get out. When will you shepherd somebody? God is inviting us. God is inviting us to be good shepherds because he is the good shepherd. Because when you've been loved on by God and shepherded by God, you ought to want to love on somebody else. You ought to want to try to help one somebody else. That's the word of the God for the people of God. And the people of God said together, amen.